Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. the Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, we got a, a bunch of breaking news over the last uh, 24 hours and even in the last hour or so. Uh, we have a new uh, civil lawsuit by the Attorney General of New York State against Donald Trump, sort of a you know the ongoing issue he's had with Attorney General uh, Tish James. We also have former President Trump's sort of unfortunate interaction with the special master out here in, in, in Brooklyn, up, up here. I guess he's in what's called the Eastern District of, of New York. Basically, there's Southern District, which is, uh, I mean, a big part of the state is divided between these districts, but they're sort of located down in lower Manhattan and then in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, in any case, a uh, lot of stuff to talk about there. We also have this ongoing drama with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, with his, you know, uh, kind of, you know, uh, migrant hostage safaris, I guess you'd put it, whatever these things are that these that these guys are doing. And the moral dimensions of this and the political dimensions of this are pretty straightforward. It's the standard Trumpian uh, hurting weak people to get other people excited and mobilize them for political effect. Uh, what I have been very interested in uh, because, again, those things are important, particularly the plight of the people. Um, but that is we understand their plight. Their plight is happening. Their plight is not is not hidden from us. Um, as I've been as I've been noting on the site, this whole operation is just screaming lie, lie, lie. <laughs> this is not this is not how governments do things. Governments often do things that are terrible, cruel, barbaric, whatever. Uh, they don't have people recruiting immigrants uh, for flights to uh, uh, snazzy vacation islands with business cards with one name on them. That's not how it works. Something is up here, and um, you can. One of the reasons you can tell it's up is that DeSantis is happy to go out there before the cameras and say, uh, "I'm proud I did this. The immigrants aren't going to push me around. They're not going to overwhelm our state of Florida. All this kind of stuff." Um, but when people say, "Like, okay, can you explain where you got the money to do this?" Since you don't actually have money, you can legally – they appropriated money that he can use to ship migrants out of Florida 
to other places. They don't have it for going to Texas and shipping migrants out of Texas to Martha's Vineyard. It's actually pretty different. Texas, you know, for, for maybe for those of us in New York or if you're in California, you kind of say like, well, they're both on the Gulf Coast, same general part of the country. They're not close. <laughs> San Antonio is like is is like 12 or 1400 miles from Miami. Right? This these are not this is not like next door. And none of this has been explained and and I think there's start of some, you know, kind of some beginning of momentum as he keeps coming up with new explanation. I mean, why Florida? I mean, I'm sorry, why Texas? Like, why would you do that? Um, he gave a new, had a new statement, you know, he's at some press event and he got asked about it again yesterday. And what he said was, he said, well, you know, there's not really a mass movement of migrants into Florida. It's just, you know, a couple people in a car driving into the state. So where do you find them? You know, we can't, we can't be like mass shipping migrants out of Florida. There aren't enough of them. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're hard to scrounge up. Well, <laughs> that, that kind of tells you something. Um, he said, but, but we have our intelligence operatives in Texas and they make clear that 30 to 40% of all the migrants coming over the border want to come to Florida. So we need to address it at the source. We need to we need to block them in Texas before they can even get to Florida because 30 40 percent that's that's huge huge numbers mind you not yet apparently since they're only coming into the state in dribs and drabs but they but it's it's about to be an avalanche apparently even though there, there aren't enough there to to make it easy to just find some to ship to Martha's Vineyard so you've got to go to Texas and they say they're profiling immigrants there to see who is sort of like, you know, Florida curious or Florida adjacent who might decide to come to Florida, get them and send them to Massachusetts. This makes no sense. This is a completely preposterous uh, thing. And I think it's preposterous because it's an ex post facto explanation. He's having to explain like, okay, like, yeah, we know Governor Abbott does this. He finds people in his state, rents buses, and sends them to D.C. That may be terrible, but it's easy to understand. But this makes no sense. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to, and we're going to, we're going to start off talking about some of the most uh, uh, immediate news. Uh, before we do that, remember uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off your order if you put the promo code TPM when you go to their website, Grady'sColdBrew.com. So remember, twenty five percent off with the offer code. TPM. Okay, so uh, Kay Regan, we're going to start off talking about uh, the the Trump legal team got a bit of a surprise, I guess, yesterday when they had their first uh, encounter with the special master. They were like begging and pleading for for weeks. So what happened? Yeah, a total surprise. Only if you kind of live in the world of like Trump ish delusion, which is so they picked this guy, Raymond Deary. He 
both sides, as in Trump and the DOJ, proposed two options for special master. Uh, Deary was one of Trump's, and the DOJ agreed to it because this is a guy who, you know, I think he's on senior status now, so he's kind of having a reduced workload, but has been around for a long time and is kind of, you know, straight shooter, you know, defense and prosecutors like him. He's just kind of considered to be fair by the book kind of a fellow, which in the first place kind of makes you question why Team Trump selected him. And I think the only real nugget we've gotten is this Axios piece that was attributed to two kind of anonymous people in Trump's inner circle. And the rationale is so weird and contorted. It's basically that Deary worked in the FISA courts for a long time and was involved in, you know, greenlighting the the wiretap of Carter Page. But these Trump people have like extrapolated that because of that and because there were, you know, kind of errors in, in in obtaining that surveillance, that Deary seemingly baselessly has been holding on to like a years long grudge because of that process, which has turned him into an FBI skeptic, which is why he's now a really good choice, because he's going to have some kind of deep seated animosity, you know, towards the FBI and kind of the government in this case. Like those are that's the only quote unquote evidence we have right now for why they wanted this guy in the first place. And then yesterday in court, they saw what pretty much everybody else who's up to date in the in the kind of who's who in the judge world already knew, which is this guy is not going to brook this bullshit coming from Team Trump, who's basically trying to like coyly wink at the fact that Trump declassified these documents, but they're not going to put it in writing because that has, you know, stiff penalties attached. So they're trying to skirt this weird line and then using weird excuses like, well, if we explain, you know, how they're declassified, we might be giving away our legal strategy to the government, to which this guy Deary was like, you can't do that. You know, that's not how this works. Seemingly, you know, very non- amenable to this kind of goofy legal strategizing. Well, and one thing one thing that that jumped out at me there was he made the point which just on the facts is indisputable which the Trump people were either either didn't grasp or trying to work around where he said you're the plaintiff. Like, yes, you could be indicted later in which case you're the de- you're the defendant and at that point you might have no you know, you have nothing to prove. You're presumed innocent. But here you're the plaintiff. So you actually do have to prove these things. And uh, so the the kind of like, hey, I don't have to we don't have to tell you our, 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 our plan. That just makes I mean, he may be impatient with them regardless. But that particular point, that just makes no sense. Because, again, they're suing. They're the plaintiff. They're trying to get something. Um, and then, you know, the uh, the other on this thing about. Carter Page and being an FBI skeptic and all these kind of things. Um, you know, there's that phrase, getting high in your own supply, right? Um, the Carter Page thing, I think, you know, in, in, the, in the Trump world, and even in a lot of just the sort of the mainstream news world, unfortunately, you know, Carter Page is seen as... Uh, I don't know, like like the Rosenbergs or something, you know, just like some like, oh, Carter Page, of course, a complete uh, scandalous abuse of, of, of a citizen's rights. And, you know, 
I think it is debatable um, substantively whether the government didn't have very good reason to surveil him and and just what piece of evidence they were relying on to get the FISA warrant, et cetera. But if you um, accept the premise, which I think is debatable, that the FBI messed that, you know, messed that up, sure, you might have a, ju- a judge. I mean, first of all, a judge who was appointed by Ronald Reagan, it's not his first rodeo. You know, he, he's dealt with a lot of cops, a lot of FBI, a lot of stuff. So he's seen a lot. So the idea that it's going to like, you know, be a revelation for him, you know, maybe something like that would make someone, you know, give a little less benefit of the doubt to FBI agents or something like that. Maybe. But they seem to think he was going to say classification. Fuck that, man. I remember what happened to Carter Page. I'm not falling for, I mean, <laughs> you know, the things he was saying was basically, you know, when they, I mean, among the many things, when they were saying, hey, fine, you say it's classified, but that doesn't mean it's not Donald Trump's property. And he's like, dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, that makes no sense. So that is, a, that's a really funny point that if this was their thinking and picking Deary, it is so like, main character syndrome and the way that the assumption that like the only important things in his legal kind of history that have completely formulated his thinking is the one case that touched on the MAGA universe, right? That that was kind of the controlling case determining how he's going to think about things from here on out. Whereas you mentioned, this guy has been playing the game for decades. So it is kind of funny in general to think that this one case, which you know, and in terms of kind of, like you say, in terms of wrongness, debatable, and kind of consigned to a very kind of small universe of people who even know what this is about, would just completely alter his thinking and make him think that the government has lost all credibility for the rest of time. Yeah. On the one hand, it is so absurd, so absurd that it makes me wonder who, you know, whether the Axios story was just BS, although I you know, the Times sort of referenced it and he referenced it in a way that also seemed to validate it. Sort of like, yeah, we this is true. Axios mentioned it first. But on the one hand, I since it's sourced just to, you know, people close to Trump or something like that, that it makes me think like, okay, maybe this is just BS. Maybe they're not not that ridiculous. Having said that though, what were they thinking then? Like why 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 did they choose this person. It doesn't it doesn't make a great deal of sense. I mean, you'd expect them to, you know, say, ah, oh, special master Mike Lindell or special master Rudy <laughs> Giuliani, or at least maybe someone like a Judge Cannon, mm-hmm. you know, like a down the line Trump or judge that he just nominated, you know, three years ago, something like that. I mean, I I would hope they know that it's going to be a it's going to be a tall order to find a judge or a special master who is at all where they are on the basic questions about this. But that at least, you know, you do what you can. Right. And and that I think was I mean, before um, before this uh, latest round of news. That was kind of the thing where you expected them to be going back and forth and the Trump people to 
be asking for someone, you know, maybe not Mike Lindell, but someone really kind of, you know, uh, a ridiculous ask and then, you know, going back and forth and everything. And I think the DOJ saw this guy and were like, you know, it wasn't one of our choices, but he's fine. Right. You know, if you're up for that, great. And am I right about this, that if the two sides couldn't agree on a special master, that it would be left to Cannon to pick one herself? Yeah, she. it doesn't. I, I think that is just sort of how they structure it, because ideally, if both sides can agree, that that sort of invests that person with, you know, more buy and mm-hmm, more credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't believe the judge is bound by what either of them say. The judge can kind of do anything they want. That is just sort of the process, right? And, and I guess um, I, I'm pretty sure she is not bound by that, but they... The idea is to um, get people to be realistic enough that they're going to give her four plausible, you know, possibilities. Right. Totally. But in terms but of strategy here, yeah. right, wouldn't it have kind of behooved Team Trump to, like you say, pick Giuliani and Mike Lindell and then have the DOJ be like, well, absolutely, absolutely not. And then leave it in the, the capable hands of Judge Cannon to pick someone who, you know, I mean, likely, likelier than not, would pick someone sympathetic to the Trump cause. Yeah, it's uh, y- yes, yes. It, 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 it at least one would think, um, given, given the decisions that she has rendered so far, that she would be inclined to give them someone who is a kind of as good as it would get, could get for right. them. I mean, there are some limitations. I mean, it must be, uh, you know, it's not coincidental that he worked with the FISA court. I mean, you, you, we're, we're talking about someone who gets to look at the country's most, most, most secret things. So you've got to be like, you know, have have uh, clearances like up to your gills, basically. Um, but yeah, so so the point is, is that is as as absurd as the Carter Page theory is. I'm not sure what other what other theory there is, and you know, and the thing is, is that again, so you know, Ronald Reagan. Uh, he left office in January 1989, but you know, 1988 was his last year. That's 34 years ago. So he, this guy's at least been on the bench for 34 years, and that it, you know, to the extent that he has a partisan coloration, a lot of people from that that long ago, you can't assume that guy's like down with Trump, whereas you probably can uh, with you know with with Trump appointees. And the other thing too is is that. You know, there are federal trial judges or appellate court judges or whatever who are pretty well known, right? Or for these kind of things, you can be retired. He's on senior status. But I think you can be, you know, it doesn't have to be a federal judge, a current federal judge. Um, It's kind of out of the blue. Some dude over in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. you know. So uh, by process of elimination, I'm kind of inclined to think it's true. At least true, you know, maybe they didn't think he was just going to like, you know, roll over for them, but at least was going to have a distinctly Trumpian Mm -hmm. perspective. Who knows? Right. Yeah. And we're going to take a question from Carl here because it 
just ties in neatly with what we're talking about. He asks, Trump and his lawyers are not playing well with Judge Deary. How long before they're back in front of Judge Cannon looking for a double special master? Can Cannon find a new low? You know, <laughs> her the decisions she's rendered are so just turn everything on its head. They're so bad that it's a little hard for me to... Um, it's hard for me to think you put anything past her. On the other hand, there's a certain level past which I think a federal judge who wants to stay in the judiciary and have some respect from their colleagues, a kind of a little, a little far, they're not, you know, they're, they're going to be, um, they're going to hesitate to go. I mean, right now, um, Sort of everybody agrees. Uh, Deary is, you know, eminently qualified. All the good stuff. He he didn't put up with much of Trump's things, but he did. He was just very by the book. And it's hard for me to imagine that. I mean, the whole point of a special master is it's some. It's not the judge. It's not the judge. It's not someone who is biased in favor of either side. And so, if, if you see their first public comments, you're like, oh, nice try, special master, you're out of here. That does, I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose. I suspect, I think he's pretty untouchable. Now, remember, the way this works, the special master advises the judge. I don't think the special master binds the judge. It's the special master that kind of makes, you know, I think this, I think that, and then the judge goes along with it. So, it's conceivable that the special master could could stay in place, but she might not go along with his recommendations exactly. Um, but I would say this, and I got I'm gonna, I think I'm going to publish this email a little later. Um, a, a longtime TPM reader who's a lawyer who wrote in and basically said, "Yes, you know, federal judiciary right now is crap. It's corrupt. Blah 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 blah." But but if you look back to um, the Big Lie, December 2020, January 2021, of all the branches, the judiciary comes out by far the best, right? They shut down every lawsuit, basically. Um, I mean, that was the one area of sanity, even though there were a lot of Trump judges already on. And, and I mean, needless to say, uh, the presidency didn't show itself terribly well. <laughs> I guess that's an understatement. Um, and Congress didn't really either. So, um, you know, I guess let's give the judiciary some level of, of credit. Uh, and, you know, the other, the other point is, and this gets back to something, you know, we've talked a lot about in other contexts, that... You know, there's corruption and there's corruption in the federal judiciary. Um, there are uh, judges who um, are maybe pushing the stuff we're going to talk about with Medicaid, mm -hmm. right? Uh, defanging sort of state regulatory power. They're behind Dobbs. They want to, you know, kind of kill Obamacare. Those are sort of that is laissez-faire you know, right-wing policy. And they are willing to basically say, yeah, now we're now we're lifetime legislators. We can do what we want. But it's a little different when it comes to, are we going to let Trump off the hook for his criminal conduct? I think a lot of them, 
will say, yeah, yeah, Trump's awesome. But there's a lot of others, and you can kind of see a John Roberts type with this, saying like, yeah, we're going to do all these things, but like, we don't care about Trump. We've already got our six seat, you know, our three seats. So like, it's too much. Yeah. And we should add before we move on, just that there is a kind of parallel track playing out with the Trump doc stuff, which is happening in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, um, where the DOJ is asked for a partial stay of Cannon's order uh, that none of the investigation can proceed kind of while we're wrangling over the special master. So, you know, just another kind of piece to keep our eye on. Well, isn't isn't there, remind me on this, my understanding is, is that the laws which govern this whole issue, this, you know, classified documents, what your, you know, presidential records, blah, 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 that written into those laws are basically, hey, everything about this has to be, it has to be dealt with in the D.C. circuit. This is, you know, this is federal government stuff. So the court of jurisdiction is the D.C. I don't know if it's a trial court in D.C. or the D.C. circuit or, or whatever, but it has to be here. And and that basically through this weird set of circumstances where Trump took the stuff to his Florida villa and then where they went to this, then they filed a suit with Judge Cannon. That somehow they kind of got around that. But really, it's supposed to be up in D.C. Just, and, and, and I think people have been sort of asking the question of like, when are they just going to say, all right, screw this. this. This needs to go back to D.C. and kind of do things to kind of wedge it back there. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Okay, so we have that and what do we know what's next i know our colleague josh was over there in brooklyn uh watching this so what's the what's the next what are the next things here well part of it is that uh another kind of blow to trump yesterday is that deary is pushing for a more expedited schedule than trump wanted i think october 7th is the date he gave to kind of have uh everything kind of settled for the most part, which is, you know, important given that that would be before the election. If we were to reach some kind of conclusion, I know the Trump team had been pushing for the end of November, you know, coincidentally. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we've got that. I'm not a hundred percent sure where we're at in the 11th circuit. I know that, uh, like we said, the DOJ asked for the partial stay. So. Right. Well, there's all these different moving parts clearly that, 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 line up with different jurisdictions and so on and so forth. Yep. So so a lot to keep our eye on there. Um, now let's move to a different court being the Supreme, where I have a feature story out on the website today, which is a sequel to the one I wrote. First of all, kind of talking about this case, which basically is giving the right wing majority the chance to get rid of this pathway to accountability, which is You can sue under this federal statute if you're the beneficiary of a big spending program like Medicaid, which, you know, 90 million Americans are on. You can sue under this statute, go to federal court if your state is violating your rights, if they're not complying with what the federal government says they must do to get the funding for this program. This statute has been around since Reconstruction. It has been defined to apply to Medicaid, you know, decades ago. It's one of these cases that's giving the Supreme Court the opportunity to rip up you know, years and years of precedent if they wish. And it's important because the federal government just doesn't have a lot of tools in its arsenal to force states into compliance. And we've seen a 
you know, there's tons of examples of this before of states kind of being like, well, we don't really want to expend the money on, you know, poor children as an example. So we're just going to stop providing this service. And these lawsuits are what prevent that from happening largely. So this case is scheduled for oral argument. It's gotten very little attention, but it's potentially really important. And so for the sequel, I talked to this group of activists in Indiana who for the past few months have kind of organized. They've come from all corners of the activism world um, to basically petition the municipal corporation who is the one who appealed this case to the Supreme Court, petitioning them to drop the case before the Supreme Court can get its hands on it and do this potentially massive amount of damage uh, to the social safety net kind of writ large. Now, wait, is that group the defense? Like, what is that? What is that group's role in the case that is bringing this before the court? Right. So they started out um as the defendant, because this case initially was brought by the family of this guy in a local nursing home. And and that then it was a very garden variety kind of Medicaid case. They said his rights were violated, you know, under the Nursing Home Bill of Rights. So they sued under this federal statute, Section 1983, normal, whatever. In the year since, as it's kind of wended through the courts, now this municipal corporation in Indiana, kind of backed by Todd Rokita, their super kind of right wing AG and all this have said, you know, let's let's not make it just about that. Let's also offer up this court an opportunity to do kind of profound damage to the way that they brought the lawsuit in the first place. So it's kind of eclipsed, you know, the alleged suffering of this guy and now just become a vehicle to do a lot more, which, you know, isn't a rarity in this time. We've kind of seen this again and again, ever since the court became so right wing that what started as kind of like normal lawsuits, groups will take advantage of that to say, you know what, let's actually use this as a pathway to do even more. I mean, you could argue that the 15-week gestational ban out of Mississippi was just that, a a garden variety abortion ban that they were like, you know what, let's actually use this to get rid of Roe whole hog. So I I guess the idea is that you have, okay, so you have an injured individual Mm -hmm. or mistreated individual, sues, uh, you know, local city or, you know, the kind of the quasi-governmental health care nursing home place somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they're the defendant. They don't think they did anything wrong. So they don't want to have to pay more or, you know, pay damages or whatever, something like that. And so the case is evolving. But I guess these activists are kind of want to go back to those people now and say, you sure you disagree over this particular case. But what we're talking about here is like undermining the whole social services sort of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And presumably, you're in the social services ecosystem because you believe in the in in social services. So don't do this. That's exactly right. Are they um, it you know, it's funny, the uh, this Supreme, I don't know specific examples or the or the technicalities of specific examples, um, and I, I'm not aware of anything precisely like this, but I know that this court has done stuff uh, where, you know, maybe the plaintiff drops out or it turns out that it's moot. Wasn't there one, there was one, one of the recent cases God, I can't remember. It was one of the big ones. And um, basically, you know, the, in, in, in any of these cases, you need a harm. 
So you mm-hmm. sue because of the harm. And then that goes through the appellate process because the underlying law, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And in one of these cases, like there, the harm hadn't happened. And so normally you'd say like, there's nothing to talk about yet until the harm happens. And, and the court just said, you know, the harm might happen. So let's, let's, let's try to get ahead of it, you know, which is just, <laughs> which is, which is totally runs askance of everything that judicial review is supposed to be about because the big break on judicial overreach is supposed to be, you can't just come in and say, Hey, this, someone's got to bring you a case. You got to, you got to have something. And so there was, there was one of these cases where they kind of didn't have anything and they said, eh, it's good to be Mm -hmm. the King. It's good to be the Supreme court. So, so would it change it? Or I guess maybe it would at least knock it off the rails for, for a term or something or. Right. Yeah. So I, I talked to kind of an expert in federal courts about whether what the activists were trying to do would work, you know, if they could get, it's called the health and uh, hospital corporation. If they could get HHC to kind of drop the case, would that be enough? Or could you have some like the Todd Rokita kind of step in and be like, well, I'll take it now. Answer is, you can't really have someone do that step in stuff on a private case like that. The cases where we've seen this happen are kind of the well-documented ones where you've got, say, the abortion case out of Kentucky, where the, you know, the AG wanted to enforce an abortion ban and the Democratic governor was like, well, we don't want to enforce it. And that kind of that's a different matter in this one. If either they they under it's called court 46, which is when, you know, both sides kind of agree we're going to just dismiss this case. uh, And here's the fine, you know, here's the fine print. Here's the the money, whatnot. Here's our agreement. And then it's dropped or they can reach a settlement. And again, the court just can't get its hands on it. So, of course, now the caveat to this is there is another case that is about the same question that's kind of languishing in the post-circuit court world. It's actually about abortion, um, but centers the same, the 1983 actions that experts were surprised the Supreme Court didn't take up in the first place because that one actually entails a circuit split on the, the specifics of the question, whereas this one doesn't. So there's always a chance, even if the activists are successful here and get this case dropped, the court can be like, well, fine, we're going to pick this one up instead and do the damage we want to do. Um But what's kind of specifically interesting about this effort now to get them to drop the case is, like you say, the board members of this uh, HHC, I mean, it's got a disability rights lawyer on it and a doctor. Like these are generally people who are in the game because they kind of care about, uh, you know, nursing home, long term health, like that kind of stuff. And then what's even more interesting is that they are municipally owned and This is in Marion County, which is where Indianapolis is, one of the very few super democratic strongholds in Indiana. So the activists have kind of been going to the city county council to be like, you're our homies, right? Like you're the Democrats. Can you kind of push these guys to drop the case? And at first, I think the impression was really they don't understand the ramifications. Right. And the HHC CEO has kind of been framing this as this is just to help us avoid frivolous lawsuits. It's, it's no big deal, you know, kind of don't worry about it. But the activists just run into a brick wall with the HHC getting no responses to the point that the HHC kind of took away the email portal to contact them after activists started writing in. And then you just you haven't had much more from this Democratic City Council either. Um, 
so you've got these kind of odd political bedfellows now where you've got the city council, which you know hates Todd Rokita and that kind of side of the spectrum, not doing really anything to stop him. And then the backstory to all of this is that the Indy Star did this like huge investigative report a few years back about the nursing home network in Indiana and how it's taking in more Medicaid money than any other state in the country. But the nursing homes are like pretty shitty. And, you know, people kind of got fired for that. And Hmm. there still hasn't really been a big come to Jesus as a after that reporting other than kind of some sacrificial lambs of people who are at the top of this. But there's just a lingering feeling that there are some shadiness, some questions about where's all this money going to that kind of is in the background of a case where you'd expect Democrats, once they realize what the case is about, to be very outspoken against it. And that's just not happening. And so, you know, this sort of administrative law and semi-independent agencies work different in different jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. But is the idea that the city council, like if it wanted to, could just direct the CEO of this of this organization or even, I guess, fire him. So like it, they could if they wanted to. Is that well, at, relatively at clear? Sense, at least the sense is the city council is directly in charge of appointing a few people to the board. So the sense is they would at least have pretty significant sway over the people that they appoint. And then the mayor's got another two or three appointees. And and he's also, you know, a, a Democrat, the mayor of Indianapolis. And you would only need a majority on the board to drop the case. So it's kind of like if Democrats cared, they probably could push their appointees to drop the case. Because, I mean, you don't get the sense that these appointees are like, nah, man, I want to ravage the social safety net. You know, that's what I'm here for. Uh, it, is, it is weird how... Um there are probably examples of this on the Republican side, but there do seem, it does seem to be a recurrent thing that that you run into things like this, where you, um, where you have people who are broadly all Democrats have, you know, similar set of political beliefs, political values, um, but some of them are just not looped in mm-hmm. on what's happening. You know, I, I, I think there was um, and there's obviously a, a strong gender component with the politics of abortion. But I, I in 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 our efforts, in my efforts to, you know, get people to do this pledge, you have like with these senators are like, oh, you know what? Huh? <laughs> and it's not even that they're I don't think it's that they don't care about abortion rights. I think they do. And, they, and they'll say, hey. Show me the abortion rights bill. I'm going to vote for it. I'm there. It's important. I'm going to raise money on it. But just kind of not connecting the dots. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest questions I have, kind of the old nursing home shadiness stuff notwithstanding, is just it's hard to parse what here is ignorance and what is malice and what is just a sense of like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not going to get involved in this one. You know, I'm going to sit it out kind of thing. Um And it's also true that kind of akin to what you're saying with uh, national Democrats and the abortion stuff, even when you're kind of pushing a politician to do something that's in line with their ideology, a lot of times to be successful, you need some kind of public pressure or public eyeballs. You know, politicians are, you know, performative creatures. And so a lot of them will not do something unless they feel there is a cost for not doing it. Yep. 
And yeah. in that sense, the activists have just had the world's worst luck timing wise, because cert on this case was granted by the Supreme Court the same day Politico published the Dobbs draft leak opinion. So that kind of news hook was completely buried. And then in the summer months, when the activists were getting kind of organized and trying to gin up some enthusiasm, Indiana convenes a special session of its General Assembly to become the first state to pass a post Dobbs abortion ban. So in terms of kind of trying to get eyeballs, everyone's frustration with the Supreme Court is so focused on abortion. And then Indiana in particular is kind of trying to make itself the banner case when it comes to abortion. And so when you have a case like this, that everyone, activists, experts alike agree, you know, the details of the case are doing them no favors because it's complicated and it's a it's a weird legal question and it's hard to explain to people. So they're already kind of trying to fight that and then fight through the noise of this historic Supreme Court term that kind of exploded at the same time they're trying to get people to pay attention to their case, that is also just kind of a confounding factor here. Yeah, I mean, it it is. It's very important, but it is it is a bit hard to explain mm-hmm. why it's important. Kind of even what the deal is exactly. Like what? Like it's about suing. And I mean, as you've explained to me, that um, because of the these sort of weird particulars about these programs that are administered by states, but largely funded by the federal government, that the federal government, you know, kind of cuts a big check for Medicaid to a state. And what if the state says, all right, we're we're buying burgers for the football team with it, <laughs> right? It just does something totally absurd. And as I, as I think you explained to me that, yeah, the government can just say, okay, fine, we're not giving you the money anymore. But if the money is going to Medicaid or homelessness or all these kind of things, obviously, that is a threat that's hard to follow through on right. for the federal government because, you know, who's going to suffer? Mm-hmm. All the Medicaid recipients. And so, you know, paradoxically, the state kind of has the federal government over a barrel. And this is, I mean, it's not a great system to put it totally. to put it mildly, but this is the only avenue that basically keeps states following the law and what they're supposed to use the money for. And um, once you see that and you say, you know, should we should we let, you know, Governor Abbott in Texas just decide what Medicaid covers? Maybe 50 percent of Medicaid goes to, you know, busing migrants to <laughs> to uh, to Somerville or uh, Hyannisport. Right. I mean, it can get pretty weird. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a big deal, but it's hard. to. It certainly doesn't have the emotive force Mm -hmm. of the choice issue, to put it mildly. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's well said. And then on top of it, the group of people we're talking about are generally, you know, poor people, disabled people, pregnant people, elderly people, groups who in general, the public doesn't get too riled up about when their rights are violated. So it really is just kind of this like unholy combination of factors that make it impossible to get people to pay attention. Um, Which is why in some ways it was kind of a moving story to write because I was talking to these people who come from like, you know, one guy does consumer advocacy and utilities. This is not at all his bread and butter, but no one's paying attention. And these are people who've 
kind of been swayed that it's really important. So basically, they're just making this their second job to try to convince these people to drop it before it gets to the court. And, you know, untold damage can be done. Right. And when does so this one, um, this wouldn't be told next term, right? Next year when you get a decision on this, like it'll be. Oh, yeah heard sometime this fall fall mm-hmm. into the beginning so on of the election year. day actually more oh, good really? timing for them november interesting 8th. interesting yep. so yeah so this is something sort of you know the summer is basically when the decisions come out more or less so mm-hmm. this would be something that would happen then right okay, yep. well, we'll keep our eyes out yep um Okay, and then to kind of round off our show, we're going to talk about what you previewed in the intro, Josh, which is uh, Ron DeSantis and his decision to uh, kind of fling human beings across the country as a political stunt. Yeah, you know, well, I think most of us have probably seen that Governor Abbott and Governor Governor Abbott of Texas and Governor Ducey in uh, Arizona have been doing something sort of like this for a while, I don't know, weeks, a few months or something like that, where they will uh, pack uh, migrants. And in most cases or many cases, these are people who've come to the border, made an asylum claim. There's just a kind of a basic threshold. Uh, You know, I feel like I'm in danger in my country of origin unless, you know, unless you're coming from like Liechtenstein, right? That, 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 that is not too hard a bar to pass if there's a lot of violence, a lot of poverty, political oppression in your country. So then they are what's called paroled into the United States and they have a, a court date to sort of have their claim litigated. But it can be years before uh, you get, you know, before you get that date. So until then, they are, they don't have green cards. They're not, um, they don't have visas, but they're legally in the country. That's just how that works. And, and, and so these governors have been uh, shipping them off, usually by bus, to Washington, D.C., you know, take them to Kamala Harris's house, mm-hmm. uh, take them to Chicago. So basically, you know, people say Twitter is not real life. Well, it's becoming real life, right? Because you see how trolling the sort of the social media language of trolling has become real life because they're, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, you like the immigrants so much. <laughs> Here's some immigrants for you. Ah, 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 you know, that whole. OK, so that's happening now, at least in theory, um, these people are not being forced onto these buses. I mean, in a lot of cases, someone immigrates from Honduras they have family in New York. They're offered a bus trip to New York. Great. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Governor Abbott may be doing it for a bad reason, but for them, it's great. Awesome. That's where I'm trying to go. Um, or maybe D.C. or something like that. So in some cases, it's, it is something that, that the people are happy to do because that's, you know, people don't. And this is, this is a lot of the reporting about the DeSantis stuff has once again made this clear. A lot of people who who are kind of distant from this debate think that people just kind of come across the border and you're like, oh, this country you have, how does it work? What do I do? <laughs> Usually, if someone has, has been walking like hundreds of miles, they know exactly where they want to go. They have family in, you know, family in New York. They have uh, family in Chicago. Or there is a, an expatriate community of, you know, of Guatemalans or from Guatemala and, and in this place. So that has all been happening. 
And out of the blue, uh, Governor DeSantis turned, you know, these this group of a few dozen, I think about 50, uh, mostly Venezuelan immigrants, you know, dropped off in uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard. I mean, I'm sure you've seen all this kind of stuff. And, and everybody's talking about, oh, the politics. Is this going to be the thing that makes, you know, that locks the 2024 nomination for DeSantis, gets him reelected in a month, blah, 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 blah. There's been a lot of focus on the plight of these migrants, how they were treated, that they were lied to, so on and so forth. My focus has been something's wrong with this story. And so I want to I want to find out whenever I see a story like this when something is obviously wrong, that's my interest. Something is hidden, I want to find out what it is. And you look at this operation. This is not how states do things. States have state employees. They have cards. They have processes that they follow. This looks a lot more like kind of like an operation Veritas kind of thing with people with pseudonyms and first names and they disappear and, you know, kind of phony brochures that someone has made up down at the local Kinko's and stuff like that. And then you've got this big thing with sort of like, why is he doing it in Texas? That makes no sense. And as I said in the intro, they're trying to make these kind of, you know, ex post facto explanations like, well, you know, uh, you don't wait for them to get to Florida. You go to the source. You know, it reminds me of sort of like the debate before the Iraq war about, you know, preemption, preemptive wars. We don't wait till the nuclear bomb is in Chicago. We're going to go fight. We're going to fight the bad guys in Iraq. We're going to go fight the bad guys in Wisconsin. So going to Texas, having your Florida intelligence operatives in Texas, what? Like that makes no sense. So something is up here. And I suspect that I think you find yourself in this situation. We are the governor of Florida, rouse, trying to, you know, sending people to the immigration shelters and trying to kind of like, you know, roust up a few people to send to Martha's Vineyard. I think you get into that situation where someone's already doing it and maybe they need money and you're the governor of Florida. So you have money because your state legislature uh, voted $12 million of funds uh, to ship people out of Florida to other places. I don't know it's that. I know that he has, he's let some little clues slip out where he said, well, the people we contracted with. Well, oh, okay. That's interesting. So you've hired, like, did you hire just random people? This Perla, the woman who kind of recruited them? Is it random people? Is it uh, some government, you know, kind of uh, government services corporation, a kind of a government contractor? Is it like an activist organization? Is it some anti-immigrant group? Something is going on here. And he won't say. And, and that to me is what I'm interested in because I think he was lying about what happened. I mean, not lying probably in the sense of like, I mean, he's trying to take credit for something terrible, but how it happened... I'm pretty confident is not how uh, he said. And I think that's why each day he comes up with with um, a more outlandish explanation of what on earth they were doing. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of now, you know, potential litigation that could maybe expose some of this, we've got 
you know, two different things going on. You've got a class action lawsuit from the migrants themselves. um, And then you've got what it comes out an investigation from a sheriff's office in San Antonio or something like that. Yes. It's that sheriff has opened uh, a criminal investigation into, I I think what they're looking at is, you know, the general idea, did you lie to people to kind of get them on a plane? And, and um, you know, generally speaking, if you tackle someone and tie them up and put them on a plane and fly them somewhere, we know that's kidnapping, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you lie to them and induce them to do something they would not have done unless you lied to them, that can also be kidnapping. There's like, you know, some technical differences in the language and stuff. like. So I think that's basically what he's um, uh, what he's investigating. But it's a real investigation. And just just by the way that we've seen this is shaken out, I'm pretty sure they're going to find stuff that they can that they can charge people with because again it's it's like um this just is not how state employees or state actions work that's just it's just not yeah i mean it really is it's just so so blatant right that how kind of desperate republicans are to change the conversation from abortion that they're just like well let's just you know, kidnap some migrants and fling them somewhere else and get our headlines and be heroes on the right wing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, (laughs) you know, it seems to be working pretty well for Governor Abbott. You know, he's been doing it for a while and Mm -hmm. I'm sure I have no doubt that, um, you know, if you look, I'm sure they have, uh, State records for we paid, you know, Joe's bus service to, you know, do a uh, uh, hundred runs of 10 buses over the last three months. And this is, you know, it's a budgeting thing. You hire someone to, to you hire a bunch of buses. Um, but nothing like that is here. And it does. I get the sense that, you know, all of this is about both of these guys are up for reelection. They're both in a pretty good position to win. I think Abbott is in a very good position to win. Um, I think uh, DeSantis is in a pretty good uh, position to win. But especially for DeSantis, who seems to be the one with, um, you know, real presidential ambitions, obviously, if he loses, that's going to like really knock the legs out of his, you know, presidential uh, uh, momentum. But like if he wins by two points... That's not great either. The, the the sort of the dynamics of how these things work is someone like him wants to say, I just want Florida by 15 points. A Republican has to win Florida. So like, I've got Florida in my pocket. So pick me. So barely winning, you say like, eh. you know, so it's he needs to win uh, uh, by a lot. And I think I think he felt like like Abbott and maybe Ducey were kind of stealing his thunder a little Mm -hmm. that he wasn't, you know, kicking enough immigrant butt or sort of owning enough lib butt or something, you know, and he and there's even this thing. uh, I think Media Matters flagged this first that I guess sometime in late July, there was a Tucker Carlson segment about Martha's Vineyard, about, oh, shouldn't we send some to Martha's Vineyard? Nah, 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 you know, neener, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And apparently, that was the origin of this. That DeSantis is like, oh my God, I got to own this one, man. 
the, the market is hot Wrong for Martha's time, Vineyard baby. rice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, um, uh, and there's even, you know, one other thing, uh, the congressman whose uh, name escapes me at the moment, but the congressman who represents Martha's Vineyard. And just to be clear, I mean, Martha's Vineyard is a reasonably, I mean, as 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 Atlantic islands go, it's reasonably large, but it, it's not a lot of people. So it's a it's not like uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard has a member of Congress, but the one that is the member of Congress who covers that said that they there was like a DeSantis camera crew on the plane and that they then gave the video to Tucker Carlson's show. So, you know, certainly people in the Trump, politicians of the Trump mold often um, aren't particularly uh, focused on what's campaign, what's government. But like, you know, was it a government photographer? Was it a state of Florida, for you know, mm-hmm. video guy? Or was it like someone from like the DeSantis campaign? Because if it is, that's not okay. Um, and if it was, you know, there's just a lot of stuff. I think my sense is he ran to take credit for this without maybe fully realizing how, quite how much attention it would get or maybe completely thinking through, okay, we got to explain, you know, we're going to get – we're going to get Tucker and uh, Mark Levin totally high-fiving us, but then we're going to have to explain to other people where the money came from and, like, why was it in Florida and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I don't think they completely thought that through, and they're just kind of hoping now that everybody will, you know, kind of move on and they won't have to, won't have to talk about it. Right. Well... We will keep our eye on that situation as well. Yeah, well, it's it's there seems there seems like there's some uh, uh, rising a little you know a little more attention to it uh, over the last few days and and you know that that there seems to be uh, you know as you said there's these civil rights lawyers um, I think up in Massachusetts who have taken on a lot of these um, migrant victims and with the class action lawsuit uh, Lulac which is, I think, you know, the country's biggest Latino civil rights organization. Uh, they're, look, they're looking into it. They've actually, they have a team down in San Antonio kind of canvassing, looking for this woman, Perla, to figure out who she is. And then you've got the sheriff, you know, probably one of the first times in recent TPM history when a sheriff has done a non-bad thing. <laughs> it's sort of a doctrine of ours. Sheriffs, sheriffs are either... Um, uh, make no news or do bad things. That's like what sheriffs do. They're always bad, right? Always, 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 always. But in this case, possibly um, possibly an exception. So uh, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your, uh, not not just your first order, uh, any order. If you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and use the offer code TPM. All right. Cool. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.